1: Hi everybody, welcome to the show. Today we're talking with Julie Raymeyer. She is an award-winning freelance math and science journalist and contributing editor at Discover Magazine. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Oprah Magazine, Discover, Science News, Wired, and many others. Today we're discussing her memoir, Through the Shadowlands, a science writer's odyssey into an illness science doesn't understand. Julie, welcome to the show. I'm so pleased to be here. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm excited to have you here. When I found your book, I, I knew that this would be a perfect topic for this show. I think, you know, having read it yesterday, that what you went through is, is, is why I do the show. I'm called Falling Through the Cracks for a reason. And, and um, you know, my goal is to bring information to people who can't get help the same way that, that you couldn't. And uh, I just wonder if you can tell us a little bit about how your journey started and, and what happened for you. Sure. Um, It
2: started very gradually um, at a time of an enormous amount of stress. I was building my own house. I was working full time. And um, my husband at the time was going through a severe illness. So it was really, you know, kind of over the top stressful time. And I was really exhausted. And at the time, I mostly thought, well, of course I'm exhausted. You know, my life's a mess. I'm working way too hard. Who wouldn't be exhausted, but it was on a level that was a little more than what you would expect. You know, I found myself, um, like, tracing my hand along the wall as I walked to the bathroom because I was afraid I might pass out, which is not exactly just ordinary exhaustion. Um, But still, I figured, well you know, finish the house, get my life in order, and everything will be okay. And I did finish the house, and I did get my life in order, and everything wasn't really okay. I got a little better, but I continued to have real problems with exercise. Exercise just didn't feel good the way that it used to. And uh, then things started getting worse Uh, after that. I started having much more problems with exercise, you know, just kind of weird things happened. Um, I had a week of that I called a flu, but it wasn't really like a flu I'd ever had. Um, Like, just a general sense of something going wrong. And when, at that point, when I exercised, then I really, really paid for it the next day. I would be pretty much in bed, just exhausted and hurting and um, exhausted. And um, so then... Um, You know, even then I thought, okay, well, something's wrong here. I'll try to figure it out. But I was kind of trying to not be too worked up about it. But then I woke up one morning and I couldn't walk. Um, I had gotten a hepatitis A vaccine in preparation for a trip to Peru. And about 24 hours after I got that vaccine, I was just completely exhausted, went to bed, slept for about 24 hours, woke up, and I couldn't walk. And that was really terrifying. And that was the first time that I said, okay, something is, you know, clearly really, really, really wrong here. And I have to get a doctor to figure it out.
1: So, um, when you went down that road to, to see doctors and, and that, what, what came out of that?
2: So I, I went, I went to a, excuse me, I went to a neurologist first, um, cause I figured well, you know, there's, the signals don't seem to be reaching from my brain to my legs to allow me to walk, so it must be a neurological problem. And um, staggered into his office, really barely able to move at all. And he did a few very cursory tests, and then he told me that there was nothing neurologically wrong with me, and that I had chronic fatigue syndrome. And I was so shocked. I, you know, I'd wondered for years if I might have chronic fatigue syndrome at the stage when I was really tired, but like, this wasn't tired. You know, I, I couldn't walk. It was a completely different thing. And I was especially shocked when then I was like, okay, so if it's chronic fatigue syndrome, what do I do? You know, are there tests are there doctors are there treatments? What's the next step? And he had absolutely nothing to say. And it was clear that for him, that diagnosis meant, please get out of my office. I have nothing to offer you.
1: You know, it, um, although I'm, I'm not surprised because this is actually, you know, stories I hear every day in my office. I'm, I, I'm cool. just, <laughs> you know, I'm just wondering, um, you know, it didn't even seem like he did a lot of testing. Um, you know, he, he just kind of looked at you and said, this is where you are. And, and so how did, how did that feel to you that you weren't, you weren't even with him for very long? There wasn't follow up testing? Like what happened with all of that and with your care as well? Yeah, so so I, you know, of course went to see a bunch of other doctors as well
2: and um both both chronic fatigue syndrome specialists and other neurologists and endocrinologists and you know anybody who seemed relevant. Um and you know, I eventually concluded that basically doctors just didn't have anything to offer. Um, another neurologist I went to suggested that it was conversion disorder. In other words, it was all in my head. Um, the chronic fatigue syndrome specialist I went to was sort of, um, like halfway between a real doctor and a quack. I couldn't really figure him out. (laughs) Um, There was, you know, a lot that made me uncomfortable. He had pictures of, of, you know, semi-naked women as ads for cellulite treatments, like just really not um not something that I was comfortable with, but at the same time he had plausible sounding treatments, although then they did nothing for me so um, eventually, I just felt like you know none of these people really know anything about this, and what I discovered that really made a difference for me was being extremely careful not to overdo it. The way I figured this out was I, in these kind of early days after the paralysis started, I woke up one morning feeling much better. And I was, you know, I could walk, I could move. I felt pretty good. And so I thought, okay, time to go to the grocery store. (laughs) I need some groceries. And and then partway through the grocery store trip, I started getting tired, but I didn't feel like I could just stop. And so I you know, I finished and got my groceries home. And by the time I got home, I was completely exhausted. And then that night I couldn't even make it to the bathroom. I mean, I couldn't even crawl to the bathroom. Um, and, and that was kind of when the light bulb went on and I realized, okay, I did too much and that made it worse. So let's try being really, really careful to not overdo it. And that made a really enormous difference. And for, quite a few years that was really one of my main management strategies and by doing that um and various other tricks that I found along the way i was able to have a kind of constrained but semi normal life and um and i you know i i also just had this sort of hope that it would just fade away and everything would be fine <laughs> you know Since nobody, you know, it seems like okay. Well, there's nothing that doctors can recognize as wrong with me, so it's some weird thing, and somehow it'll just all be okay. Um, And that, and I also focused a lot at that point on um, sort of keeping calm about it, limiting what it took from my life, you know, trying to strategized to live as kind of richly as I could within the constraints that it imposed on me. And for some years, that felt like a workable strategy. You know, it it got better and it got worse. Um, And there were times when it was fairly problematic and times when I was almost well. Um, And then in late 2010, I was in a good period, good enough that I could go on, say, you know, three-mile gentle hikes. And on one such hike... Um, I was about a mile from home in you know the middle of nowhere, somewhere that nobody else ever really goes, and I started getting tired. And I knew that was time to stop, that if I kept going at all, I would pay for it. But I was a mile into the wilderness, so I didn't have a choice. And so I rested for a while, and then I kept walking, and then I rested, and then I kept walking. And I knew that I was going to pay, And I ended up paying with a year in bed. Um, For the next year, I was um, bed-bound about half the time. And um, really just, it was kind of, at that point, it was kind of game over. I mean, I couldn't really work. I couldn't really think clearly. I sometimes couldn't even turn over in bed. Um, It was really quite terrifying.
1: Um, I want to talk about this more. We are going to take a a quick break and then um, we're going to come back to this. We're talking today with Julie Raymeyer. She's the author of Through the Shadowlands, A Science Writer's Odyssey into an Illness Science Doesn't Understand. We'll be back shortly.
0: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
3: The largest syndicated alternative health talk program has come to the Voice America Network. The Dr. Bob Martin Show is the program that will answer your health questions and help you to heal your own body of many different ailments. Each week, you'll hear the answers that Dr. Bob gives to his callers that help them to be their own doctor most of the time. We'll also discuss developments on the health care front and what you need to do to keep your body in top form. The Dr. Bob Martin Show airs Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events at voiceamerica.com voice america is where you are and where you want to be join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available don't forget to view all our live events including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events
0: your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Julie Raymeyer. We're discussing her memoir, Through the Shadowlands. Now, Julie, um, before the break, you talked about how sick you were and that that you couldn't get out of bed, and I I want to um, just bring everybody's attention to what you were like before you were sick I think that's actually really important um, you were very active and it, it, it was something that, that you loved to do and, and if you can just um, uh, tell us a little bit because as we get talking to more about your diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome and just how people view that I think it's important for them to understand the mindset that that you came from.
2: Sure absolutely yeah so before I got sick I um, ran a marathon I built my own house out of straw bales. I was on a search and rescue team rescuing people in the wilderness. I was very, very active. I loved exercise. You know, it was just, it was a real source of pleasure for me and also kind of a, you know, a management tool for managing stress and, and um, just generally, you know, feeling good. That was really something that I relied on. So when I... Started having trouble with exercise. It was really a shock and um, just hard, (laughs) you know. It's like, but but (laughs) I need to exercise. Like this is you know this is part of how I feel good. I also I think another thing that's that's important to know in terms of my background is that I'm a science writer, and so um, when I first started getting seriously sick of course, I turned to to science, you know, that was my, that was the obvious place to go. And when doctors had so little to offer me, then I dug into the scientific literature myself to see what I could figure out. And I was pretty shocked at what I found, because what I found was almost nothing. I mean, the scientific literature on chronic fatigue syndrome at the time was so weak and spotty, you know, small studies that were very uncertain, that had never been followed up on, all kinds of problems in the research literature, and that was really, um, it was appalling to me, and I um, I felt kind of abandoned, you know, I felt abandoned by medicine, I felt abandoned by doctors, I felt abandoned by science, and um, it was a huge
1: shock. So, um, you know, I can definitely relate to that um, in, in my journey to discover that I had uh, chronic Lyme, which took 14 years. And I think if I'm right, your journey took seven. When you look at that, it's a huge chunk of your life. Mm-hmm. Um y- yeah, I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia and I was waiting for my Lyme test to come back at that time. And mm-hmm. of course, um, you know, I had that conversation with, with the rheumatologist that I was seeing and, and told that I was wasting my money and the doctor I was seeing was a quack and, and um, you know, although we're then recognizing what I do for a living <laughs> and, then you know, he's like, I'm sure you're different though, you know, being mm-hmm. more, in, in, you know, practicing Chinese medicine was, it was a little um, on his end of... I was wasting people's time and money as well, mm-hmm. and um, you know it, it's. Um, then you know three weeks later, I was diagnosed with with Lyme, and um, you know it 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 was. Um, and and we haven't got to to what you know your your light bulb and your illness yet, but that's what it, it felt like to me. But in that process, in that fourteen years of you know, I was a young woman. I was 21 when I started looking, and mm-hmm. I was told I had anxiety. I was young, mm-hmm. and I would get over all my issues. When mm-hmm. I hit um, almost 30, and I was sicker, and my it, my symptoms had developed up to 120, I was told, well, you know what? You're you're almost 30 now. This is the way it's going to be. <laughs> Ignore, <laughs> you know, and so I couldn't win, and I, I pointed that out to a doctor, and he was like, yeah, well, you know, it's the way it is, and um, it seems like that's a a lot of what was happening with you as well. That you know, well, now you have chronic fatigue. What, why are you still here? Why are you still going to doctors? Right? It's kind of the right. same I got as well,
2: right? Yeah, very much so. And I think you know, I think sexism plays a huge role in these illnesses not getting taken seriously, and women, you know, over and over and over in the healthcare system end up being told it's all in their head, it's just anxiety, they're depressed. Um, and when, you know, it's it's a kind of cycle that feeds on itself because these illnesses that affect us predominantly are less studied and sexism plays a role in that. And then because they're less studied, doctors don't know what to say. They don't like not having anything to offer and so then they blame it on us by saying it's all on our heads. And then when there is this general perception that these are illnesses are somehow not real illnesses, um, then they don't deserve to be studied. And so there's no research on it. And it's this this ever-tightening cycle that um, leaves women sick and untreated.
1: Um, you know, and, and I think an, an, another part of that is, you know, you have were given the diagnosis of, diagnosis of conversion disorder um, which is considered you know mental illness causing your your symptoms and um, and I'm, I'm wondering if after that and after the chronic fatigue diagnosis it was just like well this is in your head so why are you here and they're kind of done with looking
2: yeah I think there's I think there's a lot of truth to that I think there's a lot of truth to that and I also just gave up i mean particularly after the neurologist said I had conversion disorder it just felt like i mean it actually felt kind of dangerous dealing with these doctors you know like um, they're going to throw me in the loony bin you know like mm-hmm. it, it, well i i felt really unsafe in those situations
1: well and you you mentioned that that uh-huh. in your book as well that you had heard stories where where that had happened so maybe you can just tell people why you felt afraid of of pursuing your your symptoms further that's right so so it's really this is
2: this is more of a problem outside the U.S. than it is in the U.S. But there are the most horrifying stories of what's happened to people. There's a, a young woman in Denmark who got thrown into a psychiatric ward and kept against her will for years. A young woman with chronic fatigue syndrome. Her um, parents were not allowed her to see were not allowed to see her for extended periods of time. And she only got released um, a year ago or so, something like that, Um, a little over a year ago. And during that time, she deteriorated dramatically. Um, There were periods when she was unable to communicate at all. And um, at this point, I don't know how she's doing. I think her family is, you know, trying to just sort of be quiet and give everyone time to... To kind of heal and adjust to the new reality but it's it's horrifying it's completely horrifying and um, that is fueled by some really terrible research that I actually have done quite a bit of work to tear down there was a study done in Britain called the pace trial it was the largest treatment trial that's ever been done in chronic fatigue syndrome and it claimed to show that cognitive behavioral therapy and graded exercise therapy are effective treatments for the illness. And this was based on this theory that that what was going on with the illness was that people got a bad bug or something like that and they got out of shape and then they just sort of freaked out and believed they had some continuing illness that prevented them from exercise and so they didn't exercise regularly to build back up and that was what was perpetuating their symptoms, so they just needed to get over this silly idea they had that they were sick and get active again and they would be just fine. And in England, if you refuse graded exercise therapy, which means gradually increasing exercise, um, if you refuse to do that, which is actually a very dangerous treatment for this illness, you may well be deprived of um, disability payments. It's often a precondition for disability payments. It's really, a, it's really a shocking situation.
1: So um, now there is a lot of controversy over this uh, this study. And can you just right. tell us what what that is? Yeah. So
2: um, <laughs> I, I the study came out when I was at my very sickest um, in 2011, and you know, again, often too sick to turn over in bed. And and I just kind of couldn't believe it. Um, And particularly because I'm a science writer, you know, I thought that a large study published in The Lancet that got pretty much consistent, positive press coverage, I thought, you know, well, it must be okay, but it didn't make any sense. And over the coming months, I dug into it more, and I realized it was a shockingly bad study. So just to give you one example, there, there there, are so many problems I couldn't, like we would be here all day talking about all the problems, but just one of them is um, you could enter the trial, get worse on the two main measures um, that they used that tracked fatigue and physical function. It gets sicker and they could say you had recovered. So you, you... Get worse. You come in. You're you're disabled according to their reports. You get worse, and they say you're recovered.
1: It's just stunning. It it is, and you know when I was when I was reading what you're reading about it, um, you know they they have the graduated exercise, but the cognitive behavior therapy, and and you know with the way that you put it, um, you know the cognitive behavior therapy makes you look at your symptoms in a different way, so don't be as aware of them, and and then they won't bother you as much. So um, that doesn't mean that they're not there. And even worse, you're trying to do what you were told to do during the exactly. study, and, right? exactly, exactly. But, yeah. yeah,
2: that's a that's another really key problem with this. You know, the they're telling you you're staying sick because you're too focused on your symptoms. So focus on your symptoms less, and you'll feel better. And then they say, okay, so how are your symptoms now? And <laughs> like, what are you going to say? Uh, I guess they're not as quite as bad as because I'm trying are. not
1: to be aware of them. Fine. And yeah, and like, oh great, you're better. They worked. <laughs> well That's and insane. it it didn't even it doesn't sound like there's other ways to to measure how people are dealing with with fatigue and and exercise so um you know it sounds like they didn't even have the the proper tools to to study people of of how they had handled things like just also to go by especially when you're doing cognitive behavioral therapy and then you're measuring what somebody says of how they feel
3: right. um and then the other well, the other issues fact, with the trial they
1: originally planned to measure people's um, activity
2: levels with basically a, a pedometer, um, and which you know makes sense, like actually track and see are people more active, and then they got rid of that measure. They they claimed it was too much of an imposition on the patients, and so they got rid of it. And their only the only measures that they relied on and that where they reported success were subjective ones. Um, and you know it, in this case. These researchers are so invested in this theory, you know, it is their careers that they have spent promulgating this. And so I really, I really think the incentives are set up in a way where they have a very, very, very heavy incentive to say that this works. And so they basically just manipulated the data to uh, get the results that they wanted to have.
1: Which um, isn't how studies and trials are supposed to go. <laughs> Not at all. So, and, yeah. and, you
2: know, there are problems in so many levels. It's the original research, but then it's also the fact that that the Lancet published it. It's also the fact that journalists ate it up. I mean, it was ballyhooed and headlines around the world. Um, and... Uh, And they did not listen at all to patients when patients complained. And, in fact, these researchers uh, claimed that they had received death threats from these crazy patients. And then the journalists completely ran with that story without actually confirming it. And, in fact, later um, the researchers were forced to admit that neither the PACE trial researchers nor any of the PACE trial recipients had ever received a threat of any
1: kind. That's pretty crazy. So how uh, um, how were people portrayed that were arguing against this? Um, oh, they, well, this- I mean, this, this death threat thing had an incredible impact um,
2: because, I mean, they were portrayed as loonies. You know, they were portrayed as crazy people who didn't, um, who were anti-science and uh, just didn't want their illness portrayed as psychiatric, even though obviously it was. Um and, uh, yeah, they were not taken seriously at all. Things have, however, changed enormously in this regard. Um, and, and it's really, like, there's a single journalist gets an enormous amount of the credit for it. So, uh, David Tuller, um, actually wrote the New York Times story about the PACE trial that was better than most, but still fundamentally credulous about the, about the, the trial, and then he got contacted by patients saying, whoa, 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 there are big problems. And unlike other journalists, he listened and he paid attention. And he realized that the patients were right. There were huge problems. And so he really took this on and he did a huge expose and has basically devoted his career to it for the last several years. He um managed to get serious sci- scientific attention To the flaws in the trial for the first time, and he orchestrated an open letter to the Lancet demanding that the trial be retracted that was signed by over a 100 researchers, Um, and largely as a result of um, efforts from him and also from me and other people in the chronic fatigue syndrome community, the CDC has actually changed its recommendations, and it no longer recommends part of the behavioral therapy or graded exercise therapy on his website, which is really a
1: huge victory. Um, well, it is a huge victory, but in your book it, it sounded like that was kind of a, a secret that they no longer recommended. Yeah, well, actually that happened after the book <laughs> came out. That happened just this
2: summer, but they... Um, but it's true that they have not publicized the change at all. So most doctors don't know. You know, they they have been recommending this now for decades, and they changed the recommendation, but they have not let doctors know about the change at all, so that's uh, that's the
1: problem. <laughs> so it, it's uh, so it's still being recommended. I mean, I, I uh, have a, a patient who's um, in this situation with insurance for work, and um, she's told she'll just get better if she exercises more, and this is coming from a chronic fatigue specialist that the insurance company made her meet with, and um, you know, this is recent, and oh, no. um, you know, the, the awareness isn't there, Yet, and it it does come from the responsibility of higher up to educate the doctors in their system to know that this is going on. And you know, you do mention in your book the patients know more, and the patients know more because their life is debilitated and they're doing the research, right? right? You know, for for in situations like you and i were in where where we were losing so much of our lives we had no choice and That's you definitely exactly right. you had no choice you had to in in essence save your own life to figure out what was going on and to regulate your own life you know That's it's, it's exactly very clear and right. Yeah, it's very clear in your book. Exercise is was not your answer, right? <laughs> I mean, it, 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 you you tried very hard to um, to have that normal life, and it it didn't work for you. And it it right. you know um, uh, so it, it it baffles me that with you know the, I I think you say there's about a million people affected, and if there's that many people this sick, why we can't see that there's something wrong with what we're doing with this illness
2: yeah it's really it's really a shocking thing and it was incredibly um eye-opening for me you know that I had imagined that our research and medical systems I mean of course aren't perfect right you know I wasn't I wasn't dumb I knew that they were there with any big system like that, there are things that don't work ideally, but I really had no idea the level of problems that were there and I had no idea that um, that kind of how how poor a guide respectability is (laughs) you know, like Mm -hmm. I ended up um, finding answers in places that seemed very unrespectable and um and it, it really changed my view of things. You know, I realized that, that that the kind of shorthands that we use to assess whether what somebody says is reliable or not can be really, really wildly off base.
1: Well, so um, what what did you end up finding out that was going on for you?
2: Yeah, so what happened for me was, um, and, and we kind of left my personal story during the year when I was really 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 sick and I i by then I I went off to the very top chronic fatigue specialists in the world um, and um, they really didn't have any answers for me ultimately and so I was pretty much out of kind of reasonable respectable approaches to take at that point and um, so I ended up getting contacted by some patients who claimed that um that by taking extreme measures to avoid mold that they had gone from being sicker than I was to um largely recovered. And my initial reaction when I heard this was, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like everybody um like, everybody has some dumb idea about this illness, and mm-hmm. this doesn't sound like a particularly good one to me. And um, and I was also skeptical because chronic fatigue sy- syndrome patients commonly vary a lot in how well they do. You know, the illness is um, often relapsing and remitting, and so if you get better, then you're going to be inclined to attribute your getting better to something, you know, whatever you've been doing lately, you'll say, oh, it finally worked. And it may be that it just was random, you know, like it just happened to be a moment when you, when you had a remission. And so I was, I was very, very doubtful. Um, But at the same time, I, I continued listening to these folks and I was impressed by them. You know, they were a really smart, uh, thoughtful group of people and as they talked more about their theories about the illness, I realized that what they were saying actually made as much sense as anything else I'd ever heard, including from top specialists. And um, and you know, basically, their theory was that um, toxic mold causes all kinds of immune problems, and uh, among other among other things, and that in combination with other hits, like a bad virus or um, a physiological stress of some kind, that it can kind of push your body over the edge into this, this state of chronic fatigue syndrome. And um, I couldn't, at that point, I was too sick to really do serious research about it. And so I didn't know of any research to back them up. I actually did later find that there was research that at least suggested that this theory was plausible. Um, uh, but at the time, I didn't know that at all and was really just <laughs> driven by desperation. You know, I was out of kind of reasonable things to try, and so either I was just going to kind of rot in bed and hope for a miracle, or I was going to try something that didn't seem so reasonable <laughs> to me. And their so, um, was that I go to... Um, a particularly pristine desert for two weeks with none of my own belongings. And, um, this would allow my body to get clear of mold. And their prediction was that when I came home, I would react really clearly and strongly to my own stuff. And then I would know that mold was indeed making me sick. And this was such a wild prediction because I had never had any obvious reaction to mold. I'd lived in all kinds of different houses. It never seemed to matter. Um, None of them had been had any terrible mold problem. Um, so the idea that I would, you know, come home and suddenly dramatically be made sick by my own stuff was kind of hard to imagine. At the same time it appealed to me because it was an experiment, you know, like it it was um, it was a, a chance to conduct an experiment and get an answer. Um, And I was on just enough of an upswing at that moment that I thought I, I hoped I could pull it off. And so off I went.
1: So let's, um, we're going to take a break and then we're going to find out what happened when you came back from, from the desert. Um, We're talking today with Julie Raymeyer and we're discussing her book Through the Shadowlands. We'll be back shortly.
0: The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today we're talking with Julie Raymeyer. We're discussing her memoir, Through the Shadowlands, a science writer's odyssey into an illness that science doesn't understand. So, Julie, we left um, at the break at a a cliffhanger. You went into the desert to see if um, your belongings were making you sick from mold. Um, And what what happened when you came home?
2: So, when I came home... I spent 30 seconds um, where I was living around my own stuff, and I wasn't able to walk afterward. And while I'd been in the desert, that hadn't happened at all. And so it was really, it was really clear and dramatic and pretty shocking to me. I, I was, I was so skeptical about the whole thing that, uh, on the one hand, I'd invested a lot and really hoped it was true, and on the other hand. I really didn't think it would be, um, but then I got so many really clear confirmations. You know, I could just handle some papers of my own, you know, from from where I was living, and get crippled afterward. And um, and so and then so I stayed out of of I stayed with friends and away from my stuff. And a week after I got back, I had a day when I was feeling feeling pretty good. And I thought, well, I'll take my dog for a little bit of a walk. I'm sure I'm not up for much, but I can stretch my legs a bit. Well, I ended up walking to the top of a 350-foot hill behind my house. And I was so blown away. I hadn't been able to do that for a year and a half and was just, like, in tears. And Santa, I took a picture and sent an email to my friends who had been following my saga, and the subject line was, Oh, my God! <laughs> um, I just couldn't believe it. And so so at that point, I figured, well, you know I, I still had a skeptical voice that somehow I had, like, just persuaded myself of this, and it wasn't really true. but when it, when it had such an incredible... Positive impact, I thought, okay well, if this is all a placebo effect, well that 's good enough for me <laughs>
1: <laughs> as long as and, you feel better yeah
2: yeah, exactly, and so i I literally got rid of almost everything I owned, and I moved and um, had a really like remarkable, amazing improvement. Um, I was you know exercising again um, within Like, less than a year, I was running long distances, like 12 miles, Um, just really kind of a, a, a stunning improvement.
1: So um I want to talk a little bit about more about mold cuz I know if any if people haven't heard this before they're probably going to think I think what your initial reaction was that, that this is crazy and right. you know knowing that it's not it's not recognized in our system I mean I went I lived when I was in school in a house that had mold and I ended up at a respiratory specialist and he told me mold doesn't cause respiratory problems or the fevers I was having or or anything like that and then finally I moved out of my house and I was fine um, you know and and it, it's very common for this not to be recognized. Um, very, so, very, common. Yeah. And I know that was your initial reaction was, you know, here, you were hearing this on Facebook and this can't be, you know, what's going on. So what is right. actually happening? Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, much later than I did
2: do a whole bunch of research about it since I'm a science writer and wanted to understand what the scientific literature had to say about it and what I learned is that there is actually a lot of um, there's a lot of evidence that mold can do bad things um, that that's actually pretty much uncontroversial in particular it's um, a very serious issue in veterinary medicine because um, you know if you've got livestock and uh, their feed gets moldy then they get very ill um, so, so there's no question that it can do bad things to us. The the place where it gets controversial is whether we can inhale enough from moldy buildings to cause these problems. And and there are actually there's actually um, good reasons to believe that we can. But the kind of mainstream scientific opinion is that we can't. And um, and that's what doctors typically. No, Um, at least to cause you know like serious lasting non-respiratory problems. So we do know that it can cause allergies and asthma. That's widely accepted. Um, But the kind of conventional mainstream view is that that's all it can do. And really, you know, when you when you dig into the studies, um, that there's there's nothing to back that up. I mean, that's a that's a very that's a very kind of thin argument to make. The problem is that it's almost impossible to get any research funding to study uh, non-respiratory effects at of mold at, mold at this point. And again, it's this kind of self-reinforcing cycle. The mainstream view is that mold can't cause serious non-respiratory problems. Therefore, if you propose to study serious non-respiratory problems, you're clearly a wacko who doesn't understand the science. So we're not going to fund you so there's no evidence that it causes serious non-respiratory problems, so, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> From, uh, around the circle we go. And and that's happening in spite of, first of all, there being a quite legitimate scientific case to make that it's very plausible that it does, um, and the fact that many people are actually experiencing this. So, you know, I was talking to these researchers and dealing with the effects of mold exposures myself. And they were basically, you know, telling me to my face, well, this this must just be um, all in your head. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, you know, one of the things that I did, partly for myself and partly for other people, is I actually conducted a placebo-controlled, double-blind study of my own ability to detect mold. And um, I did this by... um, having two sets of identical washcloths, one of which had been put in a moldy building and the other of which hadn't. And I had, um, somebody who didn't, you know, somebody chose a washcloth randomly. Another person who didn't know whether it was contaminated or not brought it to me. I held it up to my face. I, um, left it there to see if it, you know, made me sick. And then I said, whether I thought it was contaminated or not. And I was, so accurate that I would have had only a two percent chance of doing as well if I if I couldn't, in fact, detect mold. So that's you know that's like that's serious science. You know that's mm-hmm. um, that's what you can do to say this is not a placebo effect. And um, and so these researchers would listen to me say that and they'd say, hmm, yeah, well, hmm, that is kind of the study that you would do. And then they'd kind of wander off and they'd start asserting that it was the placebo effect again. You know, it's just very, um, I mean, the thing about science is, of course, science is conducted by human beings. And human beings are reluctant to change their minds. That's just the reality of it. Mm -hmm. And so these things, um, when an opinion gets really entrenched as kind of the acceptable opinion, it's a very, 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 very hard thing to change. And it takes a long time.
1: So I'm just wondering if there's other things involved here as well, because if mold um, is recognized as causing issues, um, there's going to be more insurance involved, whether that's our insurance to clean up our house or insurance for our health, um, which right now, yeah, it's not recognized as much. Um, So I'm wondering if that is playing a role in limiting even the research on it or the recognition on it.
2: It's playing a huge role, and in fact, um, the insurance industry has has had a pretty shocking shocking and direct and documented role in all of this. Um, They have uh, promulgated these absolutely scientifically unsound opinions, and they've done it through um, doctors' professional organizations. Uh, And... Uh, this is some. I, I tell this whole story in the book, and I won't go into all the details right now. But basically, they got their kind of industry stooges who made um, literally like hundreds of thousands of dollars from testifying in mold cases, saying that mold could not cause the problems people claimed they did. These people then wrote a document for um, a doctors' organization. That got accepted and widely promulgated and spread, and then the insurance industry, through the chamber of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is a business organization, wrote up a version of this in lay language and sent it to every uh, judge in the country. And as I say, it was all based on extremely flawed science. And mm-hmm. um, over time, eventually, these statements from professional organizations have been have been removed because legitimate scientists have said hey wait this is totally wrong we can't be doing this but there has not been any kind of similar publicity effort you know it's not that every judge in the country has gotten a document saying hey this was a bunch of hooey <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and you know that had played a huge role in shutting down court cases and um, and and also a huge role in creating a general climate of skepticism about the health impacts of mold.
1: Well, and so I guess the big concern is we're putting everybody, everybody's being told they have chronic fatigue syndrome the way you were. And then we've got some people that what is probably one of the issues is is that you know some people aren't reacting the same way say you are um, and that was part of your your study as well that you that you did on yourself that you had somebody else and they couldn't recognize what was molding and what wasn't because they weren't reacting so right. you know it, it looks like well you, you're crazy and I think you even kind of comment this you're like I'm one of those moldies because you now I can't you know I have to walk out of a building or you right. know, I have, it, it makes you feel crazy yeah, and, and your reaction is different. Something happened for you that made you react in a certain way where other people don't, which I guess would be no different than people that have a peanut allergy. Um, right. You know, they have to use a certain caution in their lives and, it, it, and do certain things. But I don't think it's being recognized in that way. Right now, it's like, well, you're crazy. Um, right. You know, you're, you're one of those. And right. I'm using little quotations in there. You're one of those that's going right. to be like that. And, um, you know, to protect your health, you have to be one of those. But it is also legitimate. I mean, you, you've proven it. You've not only seen results in your health, but you did that little that study. I think that was actually great you did that, um, just to show that, that it wasn't a placebo effect of what had happened to you, that there was actually something was happening. And, and there was, you know, there's legitimacy in, in what you're experiencing. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that was that was very helpful for me in feeling, you know, solid about about what I was saying and being able to to kind of defend myself in a scientific context. But, you know, it's it's such a like I'm an unusual case because my reactions are so clear and so fast. And um and in a way I mean, you know, if I get exposed I get paralyzed very and it happens very quickly. Um and in a way, as unpleasant as it is to get paralyzed, it's kind of a blessing because it's something other people can see, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And it's kinda of uh, horrifying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's very helpful on that level, um, yeah. to have people have some understanding of what's going on with me. But, you know, for many people they have a delayed reaction and it's something that isn't visible to other people, you know, they just feel awful. Um, mm-hmm. Or they can't sleep that night, or um, you know, particularly when it's a kind of vague symptom that's that's only inside you. That's not something that you can document on the outside. You know, headache, pain, um, fatigue, all of these kinds of things that can be absolutely devastating, but that other people can can dismiss and not take seriously, and that. If that's what you're dealing with, if those are the only symptoms you're dealing with, it it makes the battle so much harder.
1: Well, you know, I, I definitely, and I think that's the um, why you and I are trying to bring attention to our own experiences, is to help people who are in those situations that are falling through the cracks and, that's right. um, you know, can't get that help. So thank you so much for um, writing your book and, and bringing attention to it. Um, if there is anybody who's wanting any more information, is there a way they can get a hold of you or your book? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so my website is
2: throughtheshadowlands.com. Um, and the, the book is available, you know, basically everywhere. <laughs> um, uh, you know, Amazon, local booksellers, all over the place. Um, and you can follow me on Facebook. Um, I have a public author page, Julie du- 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 Raymeyer. That's spelled R-E-H-M-E-Y-E-R. Uh, I'm also on Twitter. Um, my handle is Julie Raymeyer on Twitter, and um, and I love hearing from people. And I'm I'm active both on Facebook and Twitter, so I, I definitely look forward to connecting with folks.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope that um, we were able to give some people information and maybe help them in in their own journey as well and bring awareness to what's going on and why this situation is the way it is.
2: I hope so too. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this opportunity.
1: It's been fun. And I want to thank everybody for listening. Be sure to make today a great day.